Guess what uh, piece of the armor of God we're going to be talking about this morning? Yeah, we're going to be talking about the sword. And as uh, Antonio Banderas learned in that uh, clip from the Mask of Zorro, there's a lot more to wielding a sword than simply being able to pick one up. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about what is uh, the sword uh, that God gives us and how do we wield it well. But I think it's only right that before we dive into God's word, we allow him to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray together with me. Lord God, we give you thanks that you have indeed drawn us together in this place that we might learn from you. That you might teach us what it means to take up your word. And so Lord, as we prepare to study that word together, we ask that you would indeed give us open hearts and minds to receive the message that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So throughout this series, we've been looking at this passage from Ephesians chapter 6, in which Paul tells us to put on the full armor of God. Now, it's a strange image because, quite honestly, we don't have people running around in suits of armor, wielding swords uh, nowadays, not, not in the 21st century. And so the question very quickly becomes, what does this possibly have to do with how we live in our world today? And it's a reminder, though, that, that we have a different kind of battle. That, that as people of faith, we don't wage wars or, or battle the way that the rest of the world wages wars or battle. Because, quite honestly, our enemy isn't our fellow human beings. Rather, we are in a spiritual battle. And as a result, it requires a different kind of armor and a different set of tools. We've been looking at each one of those tools. Uh, uh, pieces uh, in each week of this series, and this morning we're going to be looking at the sword of the Spirit. Paul says it this way in Ephesians six seventeen. He tells us to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, when Paul first wrote these words, it was most likely that he was under house arrest, that he was in prison as he was writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. And that means that he would have been chained to a Roman soldier and had a chance to get a good look at this soldier's armor, to see what it was like, and that that's probably what inspired him to think about uh, the armor of God. What is the armor that God gives to us? And now we come to the only offensive piece of the armor, and that is the sword. And he probably had in mind the Roman gladius. In ancient times, it was known as the sword that conquered the world. This is the sword that was wielded by every single legionary. And what we see, it was perfectly designed for battle in crowded quarters because it's a little bit shorter. It was meant for close quarters combat. Furthermore, its tip was a spear point tip, which meant that it could be thrust through even the hardest of armor without chipping, denting, or breaking. It was double-edged so that it could slash in any direction. It was a truly impressive piece of military technology in the ancient world. But here's the thing. It was useless unless it was wielded properly by a trained soldier. Absolutely useless unless it was wielded properly by a trained soldier. And what Paul tells us is that likewise we have a sword. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But unfortunately, we have many people who are wielding it improperly. The Word of God is indeed 
a powerful weapon in spiritual battle. But there are too many people who simply think that because I can pick up the Bible and read a couple verses of it, that I know how to use it. And the problem is, is that oftentimes it ends up inflicting damage upon ourselves and harming those that we're actually called to reach. We can think of extreme examples like what you see up on the screen. This is the Westboro Baptists, right? These are the people who protest at the funerals of soldiers, who hold up placards that say things like what Jesus said in Matthew 5.21, whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. They pull that verse out of its context, they misuse it, and then they slap it next to another placard that says, thank God for dead soldiers. A horrible abuse of God's word. Likewise, in the Capitol riots that took place, I was astonished, and maybe I shouldn't have been, to see people storming into the center of our government with flags and banners on which were plastered a variety of different Bible verses. Now, we can look at that and say, well, those are extreme examples. I haven't done that. That's that's not the type of person I am. But I'll be honest, I think that we do it in much more subtle ways, much more everyday ways as well. I remember being a teenager in high school at a time when I, I didn't believe in God. I wasn't a Christian. And I was baffled when one of my friends came out as gay, and suddenly some of my other friends who called themselves Christians stopped associating with him. They stopped hanging out with him. And I was like, guys, why are we not hanging out with him? Like, what is wrong? And they said, well, you know, he's gay. Here's a verse of, this is what the Bible says about gay people, so I can no longer associate with our friend. And it was shocking and and puzzling to me as someone who wasn't yet a believer in Jesus. Or some of the ways in which uh, we as Christians will lift a passage out of the Bible, right, to bring ourselves comfort, to kind of claim a promise. But then when times of suffering and trial come, We find that that verse doesn't mean maybe what we thought it meant. And suddenly our confidence in God's word and our trust in him is undermined. I see this all the time with the prosperity preachers who will pull out a couple verses about God wanting to bless us. But that leaves us ill-equipped with dealing with things like suffering and sickness and pain and death in our world. Yes, we have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But do we know how to use it? Have we been properly trained? Which is why uh, this morning I really want to talk about that. First and foremost, I want to remind us whose sword it is. Secondly, how we use it. And third, toward what end? Whose sword is it? How do we use it? And toward what end? The first thing that we have to recognize is that it is the sword of the Spirit. That means that it's God's sword, it's his word, which means that we are to use it in ways that are reflective of his priorities and reflective of his character. It's kind of like when you first got your car keys, right? You finally went through driver's ed, you get your driver's license, and now you come to mom and dad and you're like, hey, can I borrow the car? And, you know, dad, I remember this. When my dad handed me the keys for the first time, he says, all right, you know, you've gone through driver's ed, you've got a driver's license, very proud of you. Remember, this isn't your car. This is the family's car. And so I expect you to treat this car well, to drive it appropriately. Because if you don't, I'm taking these keys back. Because the car doesn't belong to you. 
See, I understood that if I did anything <laughs> to violate our family's rules when it came to the rules of the road, I was in danger of losing that privilege. And in the same way, what we see is that the sword is God's sword. He says, I want you to use my word in ways that are reflective of my character, of my purposes, and of my priorities. It's not something that we own or possess. It's a responsibility that's been granted to us, entrusted to us to use wisely and to use well. But then the question becomes, so how how do we use this sword? If God has entrusted it to us, how do we use it well? Well, first and foremost, we have to remember that this is a weapon that's intended to be used in spiritual battle against spiritual evil against the forces of evil that are at work in the hearts and minds and souls of human beings, which means that this isn't a weapon that we wield against our fellow human beings. Rather, it's a weapon used to win hearts and minds in the battle against the evil one who is indeed seeking to claim lives. We talked about this in the first week of our series. I can't go back and kind of rehash everything, but there is a a spiritual evil at work in our world, and we're to use it well. And the best way to see how to use it is to look at how did God himself use it. I want us to look specifically at Matthew chapter 4. This was the passage that was read just a few moments ago in our worship service where we see Jesus himself is being tempted by the devil. And what's really interesting is the devil comes against Jesus with three different kinds of temptation. In verses 2 to 4, he comes uh, against him with a temptation around provision. He knows that Jesus has been fasting in the desert, that Jesus is tired, that he's hungry. And he says, hey, you know, if you really are the son of God, you've got power. Why don't you use the power to meet your own needs? He basically says, you can't really trust your father to meet your needs and stuff like that. I mean, after all, he's the one who led you out here. So why don't you just use the power you have to grasp what you want? Tell these stones to turn into bread and feed yourself. The second temptation is a temptation around protection. Takes Jesus to the very pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And he says, you know, if you really are God's son, then he's going to protect you no matter what. After all, he's, he's said that he'll command his angels concerning you so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So, so let's see if that's true. Why don't you throw yourself down and we'll see if God rescues you. And the third temptation is he, uh, it's a temptation around purpose. He takes him to this high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I can give you all these kingdoms if you only bow down and worship me. This is a temptation around Jesus' purpose because the reality is Jesus was always in, supposed to sit down on the throne to rule over the nations. But what the devil was offering him was a way to do that without going through the cross. Without having to bear the suffering, he was offering him a shortcut. Now, we could do a whole sermon series on each one of these temptations, but that's not really my purpose in bringing this up. The question is, how does Jesus respond to each one? What we see is he actually responds in the exact same way. And that's what I wanted to highlight. He responds by taking up the word of God the sword of the Spirit. He responds by going to the book of Deuteronomy. Every time the devil offers him a temptation, he says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And Jesus isn't simply like diving through his memory, trying to think about the last Bible verse he saw printed on a Hallmark card. 
he very intentionally goes to the exact same book in the Bible. He goes to the book of Deuteronomy. And there's a reason why. The book of Deuteronomy was written by Moses to the Israelites as they were about to enter into the promised land. And Moses said, I want to remind you. I want to remind you of what God has told you. I want to remind you of who your God is. I want to remind you of who you are as his people. And I want to remind you of your purpose as you go. Because when you enter the promised land, you are going to face temptation. You're going to face trial. You're going to face hardships. And and you're going to be tempted to cut corners, to use your power to meet your own needs, to, to, to truly put God to the test. And so I want to remind you of what God has promised to you. And so here's Jesus about to enter into the promised land once more on his own mission, his mission to save his people. And he knows that there's going to be hardship and trial ahead of him, that it's not an easy road. He knows that there's going to be temptations to cut corners and to use his power to meet his own needs rather than to serve. And so he goes back to God's word because he knows that it's there that God reminds him of his promises. His father reminds him of who he is and what he's called to do. It's not just cherry-picking Bible verses. Jesus is a student of Scripture. And this is especially important because the devil knows some Scripture too. In fact, in his uh, second temptation, he says, you know, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written. He will command his angels concerning you. They'll lift you up in their hands and so that you won't strike your foot against a stone. Now, the devil is quoting from Psalm 91, and, and for the most part, he's quoting it accurately. But Jesus is a very astute student of God's word because there's actually a part that the devil left out in his quotation. The actual quotation from Psalm 91 says, He will command his angels concerning you to keep you in all your ways, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Psalm 191 really says, he says, he will command his angels basically to make sure that you walk in God's paths. And Jesus, knowing that, says, you know what? I'm not not buying it. Because God's word also says, don't put the Lord your God to to the test. And if I'm to walk in his ways, that means I'm not going to test him. See, Jesus is a brilliant student of Scripture, and that's actually how we wield the Word of God, is by being good students of it. Not simply picking it up and opening it and sticking our finger down and trying to find our verse for the day, but actually opening it and reading it on a daily basis and studying it, understanding it, because each one of these books in the Bible was written at a certain time, in a certain context, in a certain genre. And and all of it is written for our good, I love that Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy where it says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What he's saying is he's saying, when you pick up scripture, you're picking up God's love letter to you. Promises that are meant to sustain us in all of life's seasons, in good times and bad. When things are going well and when things are falling apart. But the only way you're really going to understand it well is if you treat it as the most important thing of your day. More important than food, more important than drink. This is what you live by. And as such, we are called to study it. 
Which is why I encourage Christians to become good students of it. One of the benefits that we have being here in the United States of America that many Christians, by the way, in other parts of the world wish that they had access to is we have at our fingertips seminary-level education that anyone can access. Books that we can purchase that can help us how we, to become good students of God's Word so that we can learn, and, uh, learn it and apply it to our lives well and faithfully. And one of the things that I often encourage people is I say, if you have no other books on your shelf uh, other than your Bible, the two books that I would really highly recommend that you get are these two books that I just threw up on the screen. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. That's the first one. And the reason why is because in that book, two seminary-trained professors wrote this book for average lay people to help them understand how to read the Bible in its context, its historical context, its cultural context, its literary context, and how to help us apply it well and faithfully to our lives. The second thing that I encourage you to get is to get a good Bible dictionary. And I threw the new Bible dictionary up there. I think it's a wonderful resource. Because as you come across something you don't understand in the Bible, rather than filling it in and saying, well, I think that this is what this means, you can actually go to the dictionary and say, okay, so what, did that, what does that actually mean? What was this sacrifice for? How did they pray back then? Who is this person that's being mentioned and why does it matter? We are to wield the sword as good students of it. But that brings us to kind of the third question, is that to what end do we wield the sword? Well, Jesus tells us. It was after his resurrection, as he's talking with his disciples, they're saying, so why did you have to go through all this? Why did you have to endure such rejection and torture? Why did you have to be crucified? Jesus says this, he says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he says that he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. So Jesus says, he says, the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is written so that you might know me. It's written so that you ultimately might know Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is actually the one who won the victory for us. He's the one who defeated the devil and resisted his temptations. He's the one who laid down his life, who paid the price on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to. He's the one who rose again from the dead in 33 AD so that we could know without, beyond a shadow of a doubt, there is life after death. There is hope of resurrection. And God will come again one day to make all things new. That's why God's word is so important because it points us to the one who is the word. The word who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He says, that's the reason why you have it. It's so that you might know who I am. And so that you might teach others as well. That's how we're to use God's word. is not to throw up barriers or walls to people. Not to strike them in judgment or to lay upon them guilt and burden. Rather, it's to point them to Jesus in all of his grace, love, mercy, and forgiveness. To point them to Jesus as the one in whom we have the hope of eternal life. And Jesus says, when we do that, then we're engaged in the battle that truly matters. Because I love what he says to the apostle Peter when he, when he renames Peter. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not overcome it. Now I want you to think about that for a second. We often read this verse wrong. We think that it's us on the inside who've closed the gates and hell's outside trying to beat and get in and at least we're safe inside. That's not what this verse says. 
It says the gates of hell will not overcome it. You don't attack somebody with a gate. A gate is a defensive structure. What Jesus is saying is he's saying it's actually us who are storming hell's gates to knock its walls down, to empty hell of its prisoners, and to lead many people to life. Our mission and our calling as God's people is to point the world to the hope that we have in Jesus. To help them see that he is the God who not only made them, he's the God who loves them, the God who walks with them, the God who died for them and who rose again to give hope and new life. That's what it means to engage in this battle well. Because we live in a world where people are looking for provision and things that don't last. 2020 proved that in spades, didn't it? As our economy fell apart, as our healthcare system fell apart, as our government fell apart, sometimes we put our faith in the wrong things. We need something that will last, or we try to look for protection in the wrong things, only to find that they fail us, or we look for our purpose in the wrong things. Again, things like our jobs and our relationships, good as they are, do not satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. Only God, who made us, who knows our longings, and who ultimately invites us into a relationship with him can do that. He says our job when we take up that sword of the Spirit is not to strike our fellow human beings, <laughs> but to give them the hope that we have. To proclaim that word in ways that point them to Jesus. Because he is indeed the word made flesh. Who made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the one and only son from the father full of grace and truth. That's our message. That's our calling. That's our mission. That's what it means to wield the sword of the spirit. Which is the word of God. In the name of Jesus that we say, Amen.